Half-Price Horror. Hello, and welcome to Half-Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half-Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half-Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at Carnival of Souls from 1962, written by John Clifford and Herc Harvey, directed by Herc Harvey. Now, both Clifford and Harvey were experienced with short films from their work for Centron, a Kansas-based maker of industrial and educational shorts from 1947 on into the early 1990s. If you're a fan of Mystery Science Theater 3000 or its various successor projects, you've probably already seen some Centron films, whether you know it or not. Harvey and Clifford took an extended vacation from work, scraped together a budget of about $30,000, and used their experience and connections with Centron's acting talent pool to make a feature. Unfortunately, the film made very little impact on its initial release. It was almost unnoticed at the time. But like Night of the Living Dead, it failed to include a copyright notice on its title card, putting it into the public domain. It wound up showing late at night on cash-strapped independent television stations, which slowly but steadily gained it notice and critical acclaim. By the 90s, it was recognized as an influential early arthouse horror film for its surrealism and use of inventive camera techniques, albeit one that is more than a little bit dated and lacking in production value. The film stars Candace Hillegas as Mary Henry. Hillegas was unfortunately unable to parlay her appearance in this film into a career, and in fact her agent apparently let her go after watching her performance in this. She gives a fine performance, but this was an era when horror wasn't seen as something you could build a career off of unless your name was Boris Karloff or Bella Lugosi, or Peter Cushing or Christopher Lee, yes. She had a few other small roles, most prominently in The Curse of the Living Corpse, but that's been it for her to date. She is still with us, still around, and she does do interviews and documentaries about this, but uh, she doesn't do much acting. Also prominently featured are Sidney Berger as John Linden. Now, Berger never did much in film or television, preferring to teach acting instead at the University of Houston until his death in 2013, where he taught a number of Hollywood luminaries, including Brent Spiner from Star Trek The Next Generation, and both the Quaid brothers, and Francis Feist as Mrs. Thomas, Mary's landlady. Feist came out of Centron Films, at least a couple of which are in the Riff Tracks catalog, but she didn't do much film or television acting before her death in 1981. That's not unusual for a low-budget horror movie like this. Many of these actors come from the stage and return to it once they've done a film or two. If you're someone who thrives on the personal connection between actor and audience, then acting for the camera isn't going to be for you, and most actors who find that out find it out very quickly when they do one movie or two. The remaining roles of significance are Art Ellison as the minister who employs Mary. He was a radio actor for many years, and he also appeared in the film Paper Moon before a stroke in 1979 cut his acting career short prior to his passing in 1994. Stan Levitt as Dr. Samuels. He had only one other film appearance in the movie In Cold Blood prior to his death in 2004, and an uncredited Herc Harvey himself as the phantasmal figure who appears to Mary as a grim portent of the supernatural. He is often referred to by fans of the movie as The Man, which I feel like makes him sound like a character from Undercover Brother, but that's just me. 
For his part, Harvey returned to Centron and continued to direct shorts until 1983, including Shake Hands with Danger, the mere mention of which has just caused a guitar riff to play in the minds of anyone familiar with it, before passing away in 1996 at the age of 71. The film opens with a car driven by a teenage boy pulling up next to a car driven by a teenage girl. Now, uh, this is a film from an era when actors were traditionally cast much older than their actual age. Both of these teenagers look to be in their mid to late 20s, but they're intended to be teenagers. That's just something you need to get used to when you're watching older films, is they will cast very, very, very full-grown adults, sometimes looking like they're heading into middle age as teenagers. He challenges them to a drag race. Both cars have passengers, one of the boys and two other girls, and one of those passengers, who we'll come to know as Mary, is clearly uncertain about the idea, but she's not driving, and she's at the mercy of the girl behind the wheel. These are very dialogue-light sequences, and as I'll discuss later, there's a lot of ADR in those sequences, so we don't get a lot of conversation between the boys or the girls, uh, but Hillegas does a good job of facial acting to convey the idea very clearly, if not very subtly. When the race crosses a bridge that's under construction, both cars try to pass in the narrow confines of a space built for a single vehicle. You can see the boards laid down for one car at a time to drive over. They are driving in the grooves between the boards and the tires are almost touching. The bridge gives way, sending Mary's car over the side and into the river where it immediately sinks. After the credits roll over shots of the deep flowing water, the mournful organ music that plays in this sequence, which is a major feature of the movie, was written and performed by Gene Moore, who also did a number of Centron shorts, we cut to a series of rescue efforts. Now, there is a lot of ADR in this scene, additional dialogue replacement, dialogue that is recorded not live on set, but afterwards and inserted. And that can be a little jarring to modern audiences who aren't used to quite so much looped dialogue, or quite so obviously loose dialogue. One of the problems of ADR is unless you have a good sound engineer, uh, the sound quality, the echoes, don't quite match the acoustics of the actual area you're in. So you wind up with a sound that just sounds a little bit too here, a little bit too present, a little bit too crisply recorded in a booth to be delivered by someone standing on the side of a bridge, for example. But it was something of a necessity here. In order to get so many high-angle shots and shots from inside the moving vehicles in the car chase, Harvey had to use a battery-operated camera called an Aeroflex, which was incredibly noisy and thus not often used with sync sound. It could be placed in a soundproof box known as a blimp, which was a technique used by Romero on Night of the Living Dead, but the amount of soundproofing needed to muffle the camera noises made it too bulky for the kind of shooting Harvey was doing, hence the decision to add the sounds later. It's something you kind of have to get used to in these older films where the technology simply wasn't there to do some of the shots we see in modern movies all the time, but the fact that Harvey was willing to go that far and willing to get these amazing shots by the standards of the time really contributes to the movie's high-gloss look compared to its production value. It does not look like a $30,000 movie. Although they don't find the car, Mary crawls out onto a sandbank sometime later, covered in mud and clearly in shock. 
She doesn't know what happened to the other girls, and they take her to a hospital rather than press her for answers. The film then jumps ahead a few days, and a seemingly recovered Mary looks out at the continuing recovery efforts before driving to a nearby organ factory, where she tests out a new church organ identical to the one she'll be playing at her new job in Utah. And let me tell you, if you like organ music, this is the film for you. Virtually every scene is scored to the pipe organ, many of them diegetically. That means that the sound is present for the characters as well as the audience. I apologize, I know I define a lot of these terms probably repeatedly, but they're not common to people who don't study film, and I feel like it's better to define it multiple times and have people go, oh, that's what you're talking about, than to not define it and have people go, the heck is diegetic? Many sequences are entirely dialogue-free with no sound but the pipe organ, so if you don't like the pipe organ, you're gonna need to get used to grinning and bearing it. The head of the factory tries to make small talk with Mary, but she's reserved and uncomfortable, especially when he tries to sell her on the idea of playing religious music as a balm to her troubled spirit. I'm not taking the vows, I'm only playing the organ, she says to him at one point. And I do like the way that uh, Candace Hillegas gives a very textured performance. Again, not subtle. She's doing stage acting in a lot of ways, because that's probably where she came out of. But she is doing a very textured performance as a woman with a lot of internal sensibilities that you see on the surface of her face when she responds to things like this. She's someone who's brittle, probably suffering from some post-traumatic stress disorder, very tense and nervous and uncomfortable around people, and it's all projected onto her face. The factory head is clearly troubled by her attitude, telling her to put your soul into it, okay? Which was apparently sampled by an Irish band called Therapy in the 90s, but he has little influence over Mary, and she decides not to wait for the recovery efforts to finish before heading to Utah to start her new job. Now, I mentioned Candace's acting here, but a lot of the acting from the smaller roles like this tends to be a little bit stiff and formal, and the dialogue tends to be fairly functional. It's mostly exposition, laying out the plot details as they go. Again, a lot of these people came from industrial shorts, especially the writer and director, and a lot of those shorts were intended to convey a large amount of information in a short period of time. They weren't necessarily trying to be artful about the way they conveyed that information, and that's something that does kind of show whenever people are interacting in this movie, you'll notice that the dialogue does not have a lot of gloss to it. This is very much one of those films where the subtext becomes the text. Mary drives from Kansas to Utah, a trip that takes her well into the night, and although it seems to start well with sprightly music playing on the radio, things become ominous after dark. The soundtrack becomes creepy organ music. It's not clear if this is diegetic or not. Certainly Mary's fiddling with the radio while she drives, but it's hard to tell whether she's just not getting any signal or if every station is now the creepy organ music station. And when she drives past an old abandoned amusement park, she sees a pale, haunted-looking face floating outside the passenger window. This was done in camera with mirrors, by the way. It's a very neat effect. She sees it again moments later, directly in front of the car, and she loses control of her vehicle, much like her friend did. But fortunately, she's on a forgiving stretch of road, and she just goes into a shallow ditch. She manages to get the car going again without help, and pulls into a service station to get some gas and ask about the structure she just saw. 
Now, this sequence is not in every print of the film. It's on the DVD I have, but not on the edition you'd see if you watched it on, say, Shudder. In fact, there's about a six-minute difference between the film as it was originally cut and shipped to distributors and some of the versions that are on video today due to cuts made by distributors and theater owners. My DVD has one that's about 83 minutes long, so it may not be the absolute most complete either. Fortunately, as this film is in public domain, you can just look around and find many different versions online. The gas station attendant explains that the building used to be a health spa, offering baths in the salt waters of the Great Salt Lake that were believed to have a therapeutic effect. But when the lake dried up, leaving the owners high and dry, literally, they tried to renovate it, first as a dance hall and then as an amusement park, before finally abandoning it to the elements. This is all absolutely true, by the way. The Salt Air Pavilion was originally built in 1893 as a resort for the Mormon families who lived in nearby Salt Lake City, but fluctuating water levels and competition from other entertainment media have made it only intermittently successful. It's been repeatedly renovated over the decades by different investors, and it's now used as a small concert venue. The attendant also gives her directions to the rooming house she's booked, run by the slightly eccentric but very friendly Mrs. Thomas. It has a private bathroom. Mrs. Thomas makes a point of mentioning that Mary can take all the baths she wants, which is slightly odd to modern ears, but does matter when the boarder isn't responsible for a share of the utility bill, and the only way landlords can keep their costs down is by rigorously enforcing rules about personal behavior like that. And it's got one other tenant across the hall, a young man by the name of John Linden. Meals are not provided. Again, this was an era where many people rented a room at a boarding house as opposed to a rooming house. Boarding houses had individual bedrooms, but a communal kitchen, and meals were usually provided by the owner. So this scene, while it has a lot of dialogue that seems odd to modern ears, it's talking about distinctions that would have been vitally important to get settled at the start in any actual rooming situation of that era. Mary sees the pale spectral man again outside her window, but when she looks again, he's gone. That scene has to be an influence on Halloween. The more I think about it, the more certain I am that John Carpenter remembered that subconsciously, if nothing else. The next day, Mary goes to her new job and practices on her organ. She's uncomfortable with the social aspects of her position, asking if she can skip a formal introduction to the church women's group, something that would have had real consequences in that era, since church women's groups were one of the few places that women could exert any kind of social power in the rigidly patriarchal religious hierarchy, and antagonizing them by refusing to observe the formalities of social politesse could make her genuine enemies. It's still to some extent true today, but not as much. The minister is clearly uncomfortable with her antisocial nature, but allows her time to herself to play, and we see the pale man walking through the church as she does so. Afterward, the minister offers to take her for a drive to get some fresh air, and she asks him to take her to the abandoned carnival. They go as far as the fence around the condemned buildings, but the minister refuses to bring her any further, and seems more than a little perturbed when she openly discusses coming back by herself and breaking in, which does seem more than reasonable given his background. His being perturbed, not or breaking in. We see the pale man again, watching from the windows of the dance hall, and Mary seems to be aware of his presence, even though she couldn't possibly see him from that distance. When she returns home, she admits to forgetting about dinner, and Mrs. Thomas volunteers to bring her up coffee and a sandwich. Again, this isn't a part of her rent, as they clarify. She's just a nice old lady. 
Honestly, Frances Feist gives a really charming and vivacious performance here. She's not often helped by her dialogue, which is, as I say, very functional and intended to convey plot beats and nothing more, but she is a charming old lady. It's gotta be said. Mary goes to take a bath while she waits, and when she hears a knock at the door, she wraps a towel around herself and goes to answer. But it's her fellow lodger, John Linden. And I have to say, Sidney Berger may not have done many other roles in his life, but he gives a master class performance here in Sleazy. It's everything. The way he slicks his hair back, the insincere smile every time he talks that doesn't touch his eyes, the undertone of anger and frustration in even the most innocent interaction with a woman, the constantly aggressive violation of personal space on a small and immediately deniable level, it's certainly helped by the script, which writes him as someone who never takes the first two no's for an answer, but Berger really deserves a ton of credit for taking a part that could be clueless but likable guy who tries too hard and turns it into something oily and leering and awful. I mean, he deserves credit because I think that's the intent of the character, and this is a horror movie, and he's willing to lean into all that instead of trying to soften it to make himself more sympathetic. I don't think anyone deserves credit for being oily and leering and awful. Mary closes the door and quickly changes into a housecoat. John leans over to watch her change through the crack in the doorframe, a scene which was apparently less than comfortable for Hillegas, even though Berger was unable to see her due to his glass eye, and he proceeds to ask her out for dinner. Multiple times. She puts him off by mentioning the soon-to-arrive coffee and sandwiches, and he finally retreats to his room, and when Mary goes out to check that he's left, she sees the pale man again at the base of the stairs. Understandably unnerved, she closes and locks the door, but moments later Mrs. Thomas comes up with the food and says she didn't see any. This scene is played for laughs just a tiny bit, with Mary's obvious panic so real that Mrs. Thomas has to start convincing herself that nobody was out there. But it's also creepy due to Hillegas's intensity in the scene. She's not just playing Mary as someone who's a little shaken up, she's giving an element of genuine dread to the performance. After a night of insomnia that gives way to unsettled dreams of the carnival, there's a wonderful shot here of Mary insisting that the coffee won't keep her up that immediately cuts to her staring up at the ceiling with haunted, sleepless eyes. Mary wakes the next morning to find John stopping by with coffee he made for himself in his room. She warily accepts, although she refuses the morning liquor he offers to add to hers, and the two of them have a little conversation that establishes him as a not-too-bright, possibly alcoholic, blue-collar worker in the mold of a Tennessee Williams character. This movie was made just over a decade after the 1951 film adaptation of A Streetcar Named Desire, and Berger's outfit and mannerisms are clearly intended to evoke Marlon Brando as Stanley from that movie. Lyndon also puts the moves on her, but she politely shoots him down before going to buy an outfit suitable for her new job. While she's in the changing room, though, the world seems to shimmer and warp as though passing behind a sheet of running water, and when she emerges, the shopkeeper doesn't acknowledge her presence. Neither do the other customers. In fact, the whole world proceeds in an eerie silence without any aware of her existence, as if she's, well, as if she's a ghost. Um. Spoilers. She goes outside, trying to find someone who can see or hear her, but even the nearby jackhammer doesn't make any sense. It's only when she goes to the park and hears a chirping bird that the effect wears off, but just as she goes to take a drink of water and clear her head, she sees the pale man again and flees in terror. 
keep in mind, we do not see the pale man here, only she does. Which is kind of a nice touch, because it adds to the idea that this might be psychological horror, that she might be imagining the pale man. She runs into Dr. Samuels, who grabs her, hard enough to leave bruises from the look of it. This is a scene and a character that lean heavily on sexist tropes about women as quote-unquote hysterical and prone to flights of fancy. He brings her back to the fountain where she now sees an entirely different man standing there who delivers a line in one of the most stilted and awkward line reads you're likely to see in this movie. I didn't mean her any harm. I was just going to get a drink of water. Then Dr. Samuels brings her back to his office to give her some time to calm down and talk over the recent events that have been troubling her. Even though he's an MD and not a psychiatrist, he listens to her explain what's been happening to her since the car accident, with his back to her, which is a fairly transparent and awkward setup for a later sequence, especially since they go out of their way to draw attention to it as unnatural behavior. And he suggests that she may be suffering from what we would now call PTSD. Mary bristles at the suggestion, probably at least in part due to the patronizing way it's given to her. She as good as says she's both ace and arrow, and Samuel seems as shocked by that as by anything else she says, but also par partly due to the general stigma about mental health issues that would have existed in 1962. Uh, she decides to go out to the old pavilion, which she associates for some reason with the accident, and confront her fears. Now, the sequence that follows is a pretty big part of the film's reputation. With the portable Aeroflex camera available to him and a naturally ominous, deserted location, Harvey is able to get some really memorable shots of desolation and isolation as Mary wanders the abandoned carnival. This is a movie, as I've said, dialogue is not its strength. The dialogue is very functional, but in all of the silent sequences, you can really appreciate the amazing camera work that is being done here, all of the really clever ways that scenes are being shot. There's just so much atmosphere here that even the slightest unexpected sound or movement startles the audience. And even though in the end she finds nothing, you still feel like there's something watching her the entire time thanks to this fluid, mobile, almost voyeuristic cinematography. I've talked in the past about the way that high angles and wide shots emphasize vulnerability, and Harvey certainly gives an excellent demonstration of that here. This sequence is probably the one that's most influential, and I think you can see that influence in a lot of later horror filmmakers and non-horror filmmakers as well. Mary tosses a pebble in the fountain before she goes, and unbeknownst to her, it lands on the pale man as he lies in the water. That evening, as she heads out to the church to practice, John corners her again and presses her for a date after she finishes up. Still unsettled by the afternoon's events and not wanting to be alone, she agrees to meet him when she's done, which feels like an absolute mistake in a way that's entirely de deliberate on the movie's part. Again, they make him out to be such a horrible creep that even though he never really does anything in the movie, he, you constantly feel like he's just about to. It's a very vivid performance. Apparently Roger Ebert commented on it in a retrospective on the film, something that amused Berger for the rest of his life. At the church, Mary begins to practice, but she soon falls into a trance of some kind, and plays music that isn't in any hymnal as she experiences vivid visions of the pavilion at dusk. She sees the pale man emerging from the waters of the fountain, followed by other equally spectral figures. 
and in her mind they all go to the empty and decaying dance hall to perform an unearthly waltz to the tune she plays. As she stares, unable to escape the vision, the pale man steps away from his dance partner and comes closer and closer to her until the minister presses his hands on top of her, stopping the music with a crashing chord. My one complaint about this scene, which is otherwise very moving and affecting, maybe it's just me, maybe it's the composer or the composition, but I can't really tell the difference between the church music she's supposed to be playing and the supposedly sacrilegious tune she winds up with. It all just sounds like pipe organ noises as far as I'm concerned. But clearly the minister can tell the difference because he fires her on the spot despite her obviously dazed and terrified demeanor. He offers her counseling as she walks away with a despairing look on her face, but honestly, if he really wanted to help her, he should have talked first and fired later. Not that this is a criticism of the film, just that there's a very real disconnect between the teachings of organized religion and the way they treat people in need, and this is a perfect example of it. She comes outside to find John waiting for her, and he takes her to a local bar with a dance floor. But the date does not go well, to put it lightly. Mary's shaken and distracted, unwilling to be by herself but unable to get comfortable with John, and he's upset by her emotional distance. He doesn't really have the self-awareness to understand it, but it seems like he's genuinely upset at being used. Despite being a constant horndog on the make with a short temper and a generally gross demeanor, he can tell that she doesn't like him and she's just frightened of being alone. When she says she wants to be with him and he replies, with me or with just anyone, you feel like you're getting a little glimpse of a person who's not used to valuing himself and doesn't really know what it's like, but he's fumbling around the edges of the idea and he's not happy about what he finds. And again, the dialogue conveys this in a kind of a functional way, as I say, but the performances are a lot more nuanced than that, especially Burgers, who does a very good job of conveying all of this in a much more subtle and film-slash-television-centric way than Hillegas does. He is not doing a stage performance. He is doing a film performance. And, you know, Ebert's right. It's a really good one. Mary reassures him that she wants him, with all the implications that would have been clear even to 1962 audiences. This was an independent production, and something like that would never have flown with the Hayes Code. And they go back to the rooming house. John is all over her from the moment they reach the door, to a degree that feels perilously close to impending sexual violence, and again, a streetcar named Desire would have been on the minds of everybody watching this, which does end trigger warning with a rape. But when she sees the pale man in the mirror, her resultant panic attack is enough to make John discover his deeply buried self-respect. He decides he doesn't want to get mixed up in whatever's going on with Mary and walks out. She barricades herself in the bedroom for the night, and the next morning heads out for good and doesn't leave a forwarding address. There's a scene deleted here from some versions, by the way, where Dr. Samuel stops by to talk to her and is politely but firmly rebuffed. It's mainly there to explain why she goes to him later in the movie. As she's driving out of town, Mary's car begins to shudder and make ominous noises, and she pulls into a service station for repairs. She refuses to get out of the vehicle even when they put it on the lift. This wouldn't have been allowed at a real service station even in 1962, but we're increasingly getting to a point in the film where Mary's perceptions are becoming less than reliable. And when the attendant walks away to help someone at the pumps, the pale man lowers the car back down to the ground and begins to stalk her. That's right, 
the real villain of the movie is full-service gas stations. Virtually falling out in her haste to exit, Mary runs to the bus station, desperate to get out of Utah as soon as possible by any means necessary, but the world does that dissolve wipe again, and suddenly nobody behind the counter can hear her. Only one thing breaks the silence, a sinister announcement over the PA that an eastbound bus now loading. Gate 9. But when she goes to said bus, it's full of pale and spectral passengers and she barely manages to get away before the doors close. She runs to a train station, but again, there are no sounds but her own footsteps in the lobby, and the train pulls away while she stands trapped behind a closed gate. She can't get a taxi, the police don't notice her, even her attempts to hitchhike nearly get her run over. It's only when she returns to the park and hears the birds chirping again that the strange effect ends, and she decides to go to Dr. Samuel's nearby office to speak with him about the experience. She spills out her feelings to him as he once again sits with his back to her, but this time when the chair swivels around, it's the pale man sitting there. It's an awkwardly constructed scare, I have to admit, to a degree that kind of ruins the surprise. You can see the top of his head over the chair, and it's very clearly not Dr. Samuels. But it's still, it's still cleverly done. Mary screams at the sight of him and suddenly finds herself right back in the service station. She pulls out, no longer caring about any strange noises her car might be making, and decides to go to the old pavilion to confront her ghosts once and for all. Literally, in this case. At first it's just more of the eerie, deserted, decaying funhouse atmosphere, but when she goes into the abandoned hall, she finds the dancing dead waiting for her. They waltz, stiffly and joylessly, and Mary sees that the pale man is dancing with an equally spectral, slightly mournful version of herself. And the moment she realizes that, the music stops. The dancers all turn to look at her, and then they give chase. I will be honest, the actual chase is the least effective part of this whole sequence, despite being its centerpiece. It's got several moments where Hillegas bumps right into a specter and mugs for the camera like she's on Scooby-Doo, and there's at least one part where you can clearly see that she's giggling as she runs away from them. Conceptually, this is a great scene. It just, there's a lot of things that don't work because of the exaggerated way that it's shot. It does end with a really, really well done moment of stark terror as they catch up with her on the sand outside of the pavilion and surround her and close in on her, and then nothing. The police find her abandoned car, and the minister and Dr. Samuels help in the search, but her footprints stop dead in the middle of nowhere with no sign of a body. There's a handprint in the sand, but there's no person. She simply vanished like she never existed. But back in Lawrence, Kansas, where the car is finally recovered after a week in the frigid river waters, they pull it out and find three bodies. The driver, the other passenger, and Mary herself. Way too well preserved for a week underwater, but I think we can forgive it that. I know that the They Were Dead All Along ending has become kind of hokey due to overuse, and to be honest, it was pretty hokey even in 1962 when this movie was made. Many of the contemporary reviews, what there were of them, compared it to a Twilight Zone episode. But I admire the way the film took it as far as it did with Mary as a normal person interacting with other human beings. 
I like to imagine that if the car had never been found, the probability wavefront would never have collapsed, and she would have continued in her twilight existence indefinitely, stuck between the chance of life and the certainty of death, unable to truly exist in the world but too frightened to leave it. And I think the wonderful, eerie cinematography of the film captures that concept in a way that its dialogue and performances don't always pick up. And will I hang on to this movie? Well, I'm definitely hanging on to my copy. It's the Legend Films version with commentary by Mike Nelson. Not the Riff Tracks version, but the Legend Films version. Uh, there's a slight difference between them because this was an, a point in the evolution from Legend Films colorization company to Riff Tracks, purveyor of comedy commentary tracks, and Mike is doing something that's almost informative with jokes. It's very fun to watch. And putting it on has become such a comfort film ritual for me that I can still hear some of the jokes even when I don't have his track playing. My favorite joke is when the minister says, Here it is, our pride and joy. And Mike continues on with, My organ. Because I'm secretly 12. But the movie is definitely worth a watch for film scholars, and even if you don't feel the need to pick up a physical copy, it's on just about every streaming service in existence for free. It's on YouTube. If you come at it as a piece of history, I think you might find that it still holds some power even today. And if you want to talk about old movies, Mike Nelson, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter at at HalfHorror, and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as HalfPriceHorror. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, one of my little rules for the podcast is that if someone gives me a horror movie, I'm going to put it into the schedule as quickly as possible to thank that person for their generosity. And that goes double if that person is my wonderful wife. And that goes triple if that movie is one of the legendary sequels of horror history, an epic that reshaped the zombie genre from the man who created the zombie genre, George Romero's 1978 classic, Dawn of the Dead. See you then.